Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome, one and all, back to the show. Hello, returning champions and all of our new listeners. This is Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm Mark Ellis. I'm a stand-up comic and Rotten Tomatoes correspondent. And I'm Jacqueline Coley. I'm an editor at Rotten Tomatoes, where I cover independent film and awards. And today, Jacqueline, we are talking about the groundbreaking film that has ushered in the era of blockbusters right here at home on HBO Max. That would be Wonder Woman 1984, or some members of my family call it Wonder Woman 2. And the reason (laughs) why we're talking about this is because it is a hotly debated movie, but it's also because we had one of our own, a big fan of the show, John McCullough wrote to us and said the following, although the number is dropping, I cannot fathom how this film, Wonder Woman 1984, could possibly be fresh on the tomato meter. It was one of the worst films I've seen in a long time. From its laughable and nonsensical plot to its Hallmark movie-esque ending, I have so many problems with this movie, and I am extremely interested to hear if any of you think differently. I've listened to every episode of the podcast and have loved it so far. Thanks for producing such great content. Well, I appreciate that, John. I cannot take all the credit. Jacqueline can take most of the credit, but if you're talking about producing such great content, you probably aimed that email at our esteemed producer, Lucy, who we'll be hearing from in just a little bit. We always love when you all email us, whether it's thoughts, criticisms, what movies you want us to talk about, upcoming guests like our very special guest here today. Get in touch with us anytime. RT is wrong at rottentomatoes.com is the email address. And as always, click that like button or give us a nice review wherever you're listening to us. All that out of the way. Jacqueline Coley, Wonder Woman, 1984. I'm going to give you the stats right now. The score is 60% on the tomato meter, which is still fresh. And the audience score is an even fresher 74%. So. This is probably the film, I think we're breaking new ground here too, because we are covering a film that was just released a few weeks ago. So again, this score could change after this episode gets out. As of today, that's what it is. So special guest on the way, producer Lucy on the way, but Jacqueline Coley, the floor is yours. What the hell is Wonder Woman 1984 about? That is like such a big question. And like, (laughs) as we'll get into later, is it really a movie or is Mm. it a TV movie? We'll get into that later. It is a movie, but you know, that is part of the debate. But before we get there, let's talk about the events of Wonder Woman 1984. Of course, we are back with Diana. This is the sequel to Wonder Woman, which took place way, way, way back when, Nomadsland. We're talking about World War 
Is that one or two? It was one. It was part yeah, one. Yeah, it was World War One. I. I just want to make sure I had the right Doughboys. She goes back to World War One, and Lord knows what Diana was doing since then, but we're back in now in the 80s, and she works at the Smithsonian as a historian. She's still forlorn for Steve. I'm assuming she has never found a man who, you know, is worthy of her love since then. And while at the Smithsonian, she is uh, comes across a new person that's working there who plays Kristen Wiig. And she's essentially, well, me, nerdy, awkward, smart, and looks at people like Diana as a different species of woman. Well, in their adventures, they come across this genie rock. I'm going to call it the genie rock. <laughs> and the, dream, the genie wa- rock get, grants wishes. And it doesn't even have Barbara Eden popping out for funness. But it grants wishes. And Pedro Pascal, who plays a billionaire um, real estate developer with bad hair, leave it at that, he wants to find the rock so that he can save his empire and essentially eats the rock to where now he comes the rock and he can grant wishes. And as he starts granting these wishes, it becomes very, very evil. One of the wishes that gets granted is Kristen Wiig gets to become Diana, which means basically she gets to become Wonder Woman. And Diana makes a wish where she says she wishes that she could see Steve Trevor again and don't ask the logic, ladies and gentlemen, but oops, pops Chris Prine. He's back in the body of another man. Again, don't ask too many questions, but he's here. <laughs> Diana got her boyfriend back and her teen little romance happiness happens. And there's a whole big movie that happens around her. But, you know, Diana got her man and then she goes and has some adventures. And uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of Wonderwood 1984. So before we bring in all of our, our our guests and our producer, Lucy, Jacqueline Coley, can you do me a favor? Can you ask me how I feel about this movie? Because I'm going to quote the horse from Ren and Stimpy when I answer. Mark, what did you think of Wonder Woman 1984? No, sir, I didn't like it. Did <laughs> not care for the movie. So I think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong because it is currently standing as of this day and age at fresh. While I don't think it's a complete misfire on all cylinders, I just could not get into most parts of this movie. I will take issue with one thing you said, and that's Pedro Pascal's hair, because if you're watching us on Peacock right now, our streaming network, I am growing my hair out to look exactly like his wig from 1984. So I am with you, Pedro Pascal. Jacqueline Coley, not so much. But Jacqueline, do you think this movie is a fresh movie? Rotten Tomatoes is right, but only in the sense that this is a mediocre film. The score could be anywhere between 55 to 65 and honestly flip a coin. I don't like living in a world where it has a higher score than Constantine. Oh, here we go. No. Here we go, You know what? Shut up. You know what? Shut up. Don't even. Because Constantine right now in this like current moment where you could send things directly to a streamer is the biggest thing to ever hit Netflix. Trust and best believe I'm still mad about it. But All right, that's my opinion. The Citizen Kane of Fallen Angel film starring Keanu Reeves. Uh, this show would be a lot like Wonder Woman 1984 and it would be a hot mess with some cool moments if not for our incredible producer, Lucy, who joins us now. Lucy, you have a huge fan in John McCullough who wanted us to talk about this movie. So are you basking in the glow of your newfound celebrity? And did that cloud your judgment when watching Wonder Woman 1984? First off, hey, John, what's up? Thank you so much. And secondly, no, it did not cloud my judgment. 
Um, I, um, I feel the same, John. And I'll just say this, uh, during the scenes where she's flying in the sky and it's supposed to be like mega. Yeah. Whoa. Incredible. I'm inspired. I had tingles all over my body, but not from being inspired. They were, I got like negative tingles. Like this is, this isn't good. Shingles. I got shingles from this movie. Wow. So I have to go to the hospital. Um, okay. But beyond that, uh, yeah, no, my husband and I had a great time watching it because we were just like, what's happening? And we, we spent about 20 minutes trying to like physically reenact the flying scene, but better than Diana. So yeah, that's where that's where I'm at in my life right now. All right, not a whole lot of love I'm hearing for this movie right now. This is why we have special guests, right? To to balance it out, to have a good debate or conversation, maybe an argument ensues. I don't know. All I do know is that our guest today here on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong is one of my dear friends. We go way, way back to our pre-Collider Movie Talk days, but I will introduce her as the greatest host in the history of Collider Movie Talk. Uh, she also hosts many different programs at Collider, including The Witching Hour. She is the one, the only, the mother of America's favorite feline, Deputy Dewey, Perry Nemiroff, my friend, how are we? Your introductions never get old. <laughs> Every single time, it makes my heart want to explode. <laughs> is that... I do, now, I saw Dewey running around before. Is that Dewey... Is he currently situated on your, on your lap? A, there's a lot of wires here, so this makes me nervous, but he's oh, here. there's our boy. There's our boy. He's always, always here. ready for cinematic conversation. So Perry, I put the question to Jacqueline and to Lucy as well as myself, and I'll simply do the same for you. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong or right when it comes to Wonder Woman 1984? I think uh, the tomato meter is spot on. This is actually right in line with my own personal review of the movie, and I'm also kind of in line with Jacqueline on it. It's a situation where I finished watching it for the first time. I asked myself, is this a great movie? No. Is this movie as good as the first Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman movie? Absolutely not. But was I entertained? Yes. It's the kind of situation where you see a whole bunch of good ingredients that just don't make a good dish. I like parts of it. I could see what they're trying to do, and I admire what they're trying to do in oh, some respects also. You could see what also. they were trying to do? You could understand that? Good on you. Yeah, I actually, I think I can help out with, uh, you know, some of the, the stone questions, especially after repeat viewings. Like, I'll it's bring a genie it, rock. I'll bring it up later, too. There's one story beat in particular that after the first time I watched it, I, li I disliked it so much, it kind of made me mad. And then I rewatched the movie again, and I think I've completely changed my tune on that particular story beat. Okay. I am very intrigued by that tease because right now I, I kind of feel like Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne where I was just introduced to this whole new world of gods. And what I mean by that is that when I was a kid, you found a lamp, you got three wishes. Those are the three wishes and that's it. And then the lamp is done and the genie's out of the lamp and, and we're done. I, I, I go by Aladdin's wish mythology. And so now the fact that we're just dishing out wishes to whoever wants some courtesy of the genie rock that Pedro Pascal was just welcoming to any world leader so that he can conquer all. I, it got a little muddled for me, but I want to hear 
from all of the reviewers, all the critics out there, and what their takes on Wonder Woman 1984 are. And for that, as we do each and every week, we rely on our expert review curator, Mr. Tim Ryan. Tim, the floor is yours. What are the people in the know saying about Wonder Woman 1984? Thank you, Mark. You know, one of the things about this show that I think is interesting and fun to discuss is the afterlife of a movie. You know, how the critical consensus or the audience consensus about a film shifts over the course of years after a film's release. At the time of this recording, Wonder Woman 1984 has been out for about a month. So it's tough to say what kind of consensus will form around it in the future. But what's interesting from a Rotten Tomatoes perspective is I've been here for a really long time and I can't remember any film with a tomato meter score dropping as much as Wonder Woman 1984. When it was Mark Certified Fresh, it was at 89% on the tomato meter and subsequently it dropped to 59%. So it went from Certified Fresh to Rotten over the course of a few days. Right now it's fresh again at 60% with 391 reviews and it's got a 74% audience score. So obviously, critically anyway, the response has been very mixed. And here's what some of the critics had to say. In a fresh review, Clarice Lowry of The Independent in the United Kingdom wrote, Wonder Woman 1984 is a piece of hopeful, uncynical filmmaking, and it's ambitious enough to make up for its minor flaws. A little awkward CGI here, some clunky exposition there. However, in a rotten review, Juan Barkin of The Miami New Times wrote, Wonder Woman 1984 is the kind of lifeless blockbuster you fear having to sit through, pointless and completely uninterested in exploring its characters in any meaningful capacity. So yeah, the critics who liked it felt like, well, no, it's not the original Wonder Woman, but it's got some really strong performances, particularly Kristen Wiig and... Gal Gadot sort of just has this authority as the title character. And it's got an optimistic vibe that's kind of welcome, especially at a time like this. On the other hand, the critics who didn't like it were like, yeah, it's not Wonder Woman. It just feels like a sequel by committee. The tonal shifts are all over the map. The plot is not terribly consistent. And yeah, overall, it's kind of weak. So yeah, that's Wonder Woman 1984. Take it away, Jacqueline and Mark. That's how you do it, Tim. Look, this guy, uh, he's really diving into his work here in January because it's an unusual January for Tim Ryan. He's a big New England Patriots fan, and unlike most Januaries, he doesn't really have a lot to look forward to, so he just got us so many fresh slash rotten reviews for Wonder Woman 1984, and I will say it is one of the very few movies that was certified fresh and then dropped down. It is still currently fresh. But now let's talk about the on-screen of Wonder Woman 1984, the moments that we liked, the moments that we loved, the moments that we felt maybe made this movie, dare I say, rotten. Perry Nemiroff, if you feel like you do, where it's kind of in the middle, it's 60%, so you think it's fresh, but certainly some flaws with it, let's talk about the good. What is a scene that really encapsulates why you liked watching this movie, why you think it should be fresh? So I think I have to go with the opening sequence. I was really drawn to all the Themyscira footage in the first movie. I wish more of the movie was set there this time around, and I actually think a whole movie should be set there for that matter. But the opening sequence of this movie is hands down one of the best parts of it. And I actually also think that that sequence 
does highlight some of the flaws of the rest of the movie, but still, this is the standout component here. It obviously focuses on the Amazon games with a young Diana going up against highly trained adult competitors, and she's winning until, until she's knocked off her horse, and it kind of looks like that happens because she has this moment of looking back and gloating that she's well ahead of all of them, and then instead of just giving up and losing, essentially, she finds an alternative route, makes it to the end, but then doesn't get to win the race because she's obviously a cheater. She didn't win the race. I've seen this contest. Humble even the most seasoned warriors, Diana. I can do it. Just do your best. And remember, greatness is not what you think. Pace yourself and watch. So, there is lots to love about this sequence. First off, this is the best digital effects in the entire movie. This is one of those standout moments where the digital effect created action actually blends into the background appropriately. And I think that's a big reason why this stuff works. And for example, the stuff in DC in the mall doesn't work as well. There's also so many little lessons that I think are well worth considering throughout Wonder Woman 1984, but like fun little nuggets to take with you too into your own life. I got a list here. Get ready, because there's a lot of them. <laughs> Sometimes you can't see what you're learning until you come out the other side. Just do your best. And remember, greatness is not what you think. Pace yourself and watch. You took the short path. You cheated. It's the only truth, and truth is all there is. You cannot be the winner because you are not ready to win, and then also, no true hero is born from lies. There is a lot there, clearly, and I'll tell you that the one that I thought played the best throughout the film and reverberated throughout Diana's journey was the idea of not being able to see what you're learning until you come out the other side. All those other lessons are very valuable, very good, and they're signs that the movie's heart is very firmly in the right place. But that also goes to show that the movie is extremely muddled and overstuffed. You can say things like that with good intentions, but they're not going to have the same meaning unless you have the time and unless you have the script to explore them all thoroughly. So, as much as I think this opening sequence is hands down one of the best parts of the film, it also does highlight some of the weaknesses throughout the rest of it. Jacqueline, I feel like Perry Nemiroff took a highlighter, read my book of why I could like Wonder Woman 1984, and just got all those passages right, because I loved that opening sequence. I had a couple false starts watching this movie, because it came out, literally it dropped on HBO Max on Christmas, so I had some life interference and I couldn't finish the whole thing, but I put on that, I started it, and I watched that opening sequence, and I am just thrilled. I did not expect to root so much for young Diana and care more about her and get more emotionally invested in that small journey at the Amazon games than I did adult Diana just running all over 1984 with the undead weird Steve Trevor new body corpse situation we had. I thought that was such a great way to open the movie, but as it turns out, it was like a band that's a one-hit wonder opening with the hit and then it's like we're just standing around this concert just waiting for more magic and i don't know that we got there so i loved the opening sequence yeah i agree with you the opening sequence is spectacular as you as perry was describing it as you were thinking about it i wonder if that is the vision like i wonder if patty jenkins just wanted to make a movie at the, the mascara and maybe some people were like you can't have that many women like that because you know dudes 
I will say that <laughs> the the thing about this movie that sort of resonates with me is what I found to be my favorite part. In, in the first Wonder Woman, my favorite part was Diana. I loved the way that they played her as this, and like, you know, the way an actual superhero would play to normal people, which is that, oh, you naive, sort of thinking that the world is going to be a better place if, you know, you just show the world of men how to have their heart. Like, I could just see Diana, you know, trying to go up against a rage-filled mob and be like, there is love. And that naivete, to a certain to, to a certain extent, was so endearing about her. And that fish-out-of-water aspect of it, you know, add that in to the pretty woman sort of like, you know, uh, makeover scenes. All of that, like, really hit me in all the right places. And the only person who hit me all in the right places for this movie was not Diana. It was Pedro Pascal. And that's a problem. And I know you want to give uh, Villains Humanity. I think a show like, you know, uh, Daredevil showed that you can have a villain who is terrifying, but you could also feel empathy towards them if you see things outside of them. Um uh, but this this particular character, it just felt she was he was so far above anything that was given for Wonder Woman. Here was a man who cared about his son, who got, you know, maybe lost down a path. All Diana cared about was her boyfriend, like literally, like that was the only thing about her. And so Pedro Pascal for me was the best part about this movie. Well, aren't you resourceful? Come with me. No, I don't think so. Remove this woman, please. Permanently. It doesn't hit on any of the themes of the movie because to me, I don't know you explain these themes, Perry, after that Themyscira scene, those were just shadows of what there was any lessons to be learned. It's like there was just a ghost of any actual lessons after that moment. And so I would just rather revel in the one dude who looked like he was having a good time. And, and that's kind of what I went into. And I just want to go back to Tim's segment just really quickly and add in this one thing, what he talked about, which is that the drop, because I also work at Rotten Tomatoes and like I noticed it as well and it was remarkable. And there's a whole bunch of things that they can think about it, but I think the shift also had to be with how people saw it. Because I will tell you, seeing it on my couch, Pedro Pascal is the only thing that can jump across my, granted, 65 inch screen and really captivate me. So I'm very thankful for him for being in this movie, for having the most incredibly fun time. He looks like he was having a blast. And I just wish that somebody besides him and Kristen Wiig, it looked the same way because I will tell you, it did not look like Gal, Gal Gadot was having any fun. Not her, but her character. Okay, first of all, Jacqueline, it's not a contest. 65 inches is huge, okay? It's it's not whether your TV is as big as my 75-inch TV. I know you're it, about to do that. I know you're about to do that. We're not having that conversation now, but I will tell you, Perry, I agree with Jacqueline on the Pedro Pascal point because he does look like he's having the most fun in this movie. I will also give a nod to Kristen Wiig as eventually Cheetah. She seemed to be really diving and sinking her teeth into that character, no pun intended, but Pedro Pascal, it's almost like he's so happy to be in, in a movie or a show where he gets to show his face like the whole time and, and, and he gets to talk and not just lug around this baby Muppet so he's really going for it 
And the backstory Jacqueline alluded to is he's this oil tycoon, or at least he comes off that way, but he really is strapped for cash, and he's kind of like is stuck in this Ponzi scheme that he can't get out of now because he's made too many promises to too many people, and he's got that clean TV image, but his real life is in shambles, and he wants to get to that next level for him. Yes, he has his selfish motivations, but he also has this kid, and he does love his kid, and so... I got a a shade of like liar liar where Fletcher Reed is is the lawyer that Jim Carrey plays, and yes, he is a a lawyer who lies constantly. He's gotten way too used to that lifestyle, but he does genuinely love his kid and hates when he lets him down. And so that was the really only heart that I felt through the rest of the movie after we leave that flashback scene to Temskira Perry. I'll say I feel the longing from all three characters or that deep desperation to pursue the, the, the wish that they actually made. I feel like the problems with, I guess, Diana a little, but more so for me with Barbara is the disconnect that happens as the movie goes along. She just makes such an extreme leap. And I know the way to explain that away is the fact that when you make a wish, the stone takes something from you and that's happening to Barbara because her humanity is completely disappearing. But I don't think the transition, I guess for either any of them, all three of them, I don't think that transition is well-earned and smooth enough to make every single step of that journey land appropriately. Right. So uh, Kristen Wiig's character, I, I really glommed on her. And that was actually one of the, the other scenes that I liked in the movie was the initial meeting between her and Diana, because I always root in movies. I'm a sucker for the proverbial senior in high school taking the, the freshman who's getting picked on under their wing. You know, like, and so with the fact that Diana's willing to talk to her and is willing to to have a relationship with her and go out to lunch and just do these typical things that we all take for granted, this character doesn't have a lot of friends. And so for Diana, this this stunningly gorgeous, successful woman to be like, yeah, I'll be your friend. I it, it made me feel good. But then there is that extreme leap that you talk about once this stone, which is delivered to Diana and Kristen Wiig's character's office, then it gets into the wrong hands, right? Because the stone does have power and it gets into Pedro Pascal's hands. And so then he just runs all around the world and this thing can grant wishes to anybody who is touching him as he's holding the stone. And so my big issue with this movie, and Perry, maybe you can explain some of the the genie rock for us that might make me believe in it a little more, is that every world leader that Pedro Pascal meets throughout this movie, he simply says, what do you wish for? And they're just telling him that like what they actually want out of what. And it just, it's like, really do people have those kind of conversations? It just doesn't, none of that seemed real to me. And the fact that Diana of all people, who's been able to put her emotions on the shelf for some 60 odd years about Steve Trevor. Now she gets this rock and she's like, Nope, I don't care about world peace. I don't care about anything. Else. I just want this dude back in my life. Even if the way we get him back in my life is to take some poor unsuspecting sap who lives in DC. We're going to get rid of his consciousness. We're going to, import Steve Trevor's soul from presumably heaven back down into this puppet of a body and I'm going to take that right back to the poor DC Saps apartment the first night and have a roll in the hay I just don't know what to believe anymore 
there's there's a lot there. To, to bring it back a little bit, I think part of the reason why I felt there was more of a disconnect with Barbara than the other characters is kind of exactly what you were just describing, Mark, which was also one of my favorite parts of the movie. She, Barbara and uh, Diana had such an endearing connection, and the two of them have so much chemistry that it is impossible not to root for Diana and Barbara to come to become best friends and, you know, save the world or run the museum together, whatever you want. So, at the beginning, though, I think that Max's hopes and dreams are very clearly established, and so is the fact that he will put those hopes and dreams above his son. And also, the movie takes a good deal of time to show you that Diana cannot move on with her life in any respect. She can't even be social because she lost Steve Trevor. Whereas, there's so much about Barbara at the beginning that feels like, yeah, I'm bummed that no one pays attention to me, but there isn't even like the tiniest seed of the level of evil that she goes to when she loses that humanity. And I think that if maybe that was established just the tiniest bit even at the beginning, her path would have been a little more believable because my first reaction to the ending of the movie for her when she doesn't renounce her wish is, I am not okay. Look at what everybody else does and she's just sulking in a corner. Am I supposed to just forget about everything she did and move on? She had so much potential to renounce her wish and be a good person contributing to the world and she doesn't do it. Then I watched it again. And this is the big thing that I was teasing that completely changed for me. When you've got these three main characters, and they're pretty much the only characters, I think, other than Coffee Guy, who actually makes a wish before Max becomes the stone himself. So you've got these three main characters who all make a wish. Of course, one of them would succumb to losing one of their most valuable assets. So the fact that Diana and Max wind up turning around and learning a lesson from all of this, but Barbara doesn't, I feel like having that balance there is a little more realistic. And the second time I watched it, I understood that more. And it gave the ending of the movie a bittersweet touch rather than just making me hugely disappointed that Barbara didn't turn around as well. Yeah, but doesn't it strike you as strange as of all the wishes that... Because, like, I get it. Like, basically, I'll put it to you this way. Maybe not now, because I'm older, and honestly, I just don't care that much. But, like, think 15, you know? Awkward. Like, like I, I grew six inches over a summer, and you just feel completely foreign to everything around you and when i'm saying that it's on a it's on a hell of a lot of letters levels because i grew up in a very very white white uh town even in that moment in like the worst of me feeling like everybody else was speaking on a frequency that i just couldn't catch i don't know like i i guess what they're trying to say is if you felt so horrible and so ostracized and so marginalized and so unseen for your entire life, the minute you feel seen, you will be so protective of that you won't want to let it go. And that honestly is a misunderstanding of the character that I can't get past. Because yes, there's some of that. Whatever. People have glow ups all the time. People go from being somebody that maybe nobody looked at to being, you know, somebody that can walk into a room and turn every single head, right? They don't necessarily lose who they are. And most times they're completely uncomfortable with it. It is the opposite. It becomes a hindrance. And I think if they would have gotten her to that point of realization, of realizing that the moon will always be jealous of the sun, 
but you will lose being the moon if you try to be the sun, that would have been a better character arc. And I know you said you found peace with the fact that they left her where they where she was, but I think it's just another example of, even though this was directed by a, fem- uh, by a woman, of the women in this movie not just getting the short straw, they didn't even get a straw. The one time that I I clearly saw a woman get a straw was when Cheetah's first, not even full Cheetah yet, but is discovering her newfound powers. And I thought that was a cool moment because despite the fact that everybody in DC, every male in DC is apparently a 1700s pirate, it's that she walks by the same guy who tried to assault her and then Diana rescued. And then Diana's not around, but now Cheetah has these powers and she just beats the crap out of him. And I'm standing up and applauding. I thought that was awesome. And it goes back to what both y'all were saying is that somebody who has not felt seen their entire life now suddenly has this power and you initially use that power for good. So it could warp your brain into thinking anything that I do from here to four is for good, is for the cause of justice. And so I can sort of see that leap into being a villain and I can appreciate that arc, but I didn't feel a sense of life in this movie after that. I I never got a sense of Diana. I get it. You're, you were sad for so long. Now this guy's back in your life, sort of. There was this movie, to me, from an effects standpoint and from a narrative standpoint, seemed to want to harken back to 1978 Superman, to to be that era of superhero movie. But I never sensed the joy in this film from the first third on that would match anything like that. And I know you're not always supposed to run around and, and be happy all the time, but it's... And it, it, it's not necessarily the, the character of Wonder Woman that I need to be happy. It's just that this movie as a whole just felt too weighty to me. It, it just felt like it was it was weighing down and it was maybe falling in upon itself because it's a $200 million movie. There's giant effects pieces. We're trying to tell a tale of morality and longing that it just all didn't come out the way that I would have hoped to have felt after watching a superhero movie. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. I was just saying, for how colorful it was, it was about as depressing as a freaking Darinowski, a Darren Aronofsky film. Like, Darren Aronofsky got Lisa Frank thrown up on one of his movies and give her some powers. 
I'm not going to be able to get that out of my mind. But if it, yeah. if it wasn't so overstuffed, it could have really done something with one of these arcs. I mean, think back to the first Wonder Woman movie and, you know, it does tackle a whole bunch of, you know, very real big world problems. And it does it on a, on a very vast scale. It's Diana's journey and Steve's journey to an extent, but it touches on how the lessons learned in that movie can infect all of humanity. And it's like they're trying to do the same thing here too, but instead of largely focusing on Steve and Diana getting from beginning to end, they've got all these different paths they're pursuing and the movie just can't handle it. You, you say overstuffed, too, and, and I think 10 to 15 percent of this movie wanted to feel overstuffed because it was 1984. And that's sort of one of the tales that the movie is spinning is that back in the 80s, excess was the thing. And we don't want our earth or we don't want anything else to have to pay the price for how careless we were about spending and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger in the 1980s. But I also feel like this movie just got saddled with being set in 1984 and then had to beat us over the head again with the fact that we're back in the 1980s. And I'm sorry, I am done with 80s nostalgia. And so it's not all the fault of this movie, but like going back to Stranger Things, I get it. The 80s were a fun time. It's a fun time to set a, a kid supernatural story. It's a fun time to set anything, but I don't need to see what a mall looked like in the 80s anymore. I don't need to see what 7-Eleven looked like. And if you're going to put it in the 80s, I, make it, give me something in the soundtrack that reminds me of the 1980s. It, there's literally an album called 1984 by Van Halen that was nowhere near this movie. Oh my God. And now we reach the real <laughs> that's reason not why. why Mark. That is mm, not mm, why. Mm, that always makes sense. Mm. The very small. Very small issue very I had small. with the movie. Well, if you're going to bring your little, like, let's bring it in, your thing that, like, if people will call it Achilles heel, I'll go ahead and give them mine. And if y'all want to say, oh, that's the real reason why Jacqueline didn't break it, I'll be fine with it. Justice for Natasha Rothwell. I have not seen an actor wasted in what they were given to do in a movie since they convinced people that Brian Cranston was in Godzilla and then killed him in 10 minutes. <laughs> like this was such a bait and switch because What was the Natasha Rockwell? Rothwell. Rothwell. She plays the the boss, the black woman boss that like pops in and out um, right, right. like with them. And yeah, it's it's easy that you forget her, but for folks that don't know, she was a writer on Insecure. She used to be an SNL writer. Woman is brilliant. You will recognize her gif from the internet where she's like, you know what you call that? Growth. That girl is one of the funniest, smartest, literally talented people on the planet. Um, she started writing for SNL at 15. She came from UBC and just seeing her in that and just such a misused role. I'm like, really y'all couldn't give her anything to do because it brings me back to a certain point that I had. The first Wonder Woman was a multicultural version of the Themyscira. There were black Amazonians and all of that. Um, and they had one line. Florence, who was in Black Panther as the badass girl that says, move or I'll make you move. She got one line in the movie and it says, yes, Denelau. That is the only black line spoken of any significance by any character in the first Wonder Woman. And me personally, I found it to be very not intersectional when they use them, however, very colorfully in the background. 
So I think in an effort to change that in the second film, they wanted to add in a few more folks, give them more to do. And I mean, they gave her the bare minimum. And I just think it was a, is a misuse of her talent. I get it. She's not supposed to be the most important person in the movie. But then I think back of what they gave Dawn. Remember her? The, the assistant lady from uh, Luce, the, the, the Lucy secretary. Lucy Davis's character? Lucy Davis, yeah, 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 yeah. I called her Dawn because that's her character from The Office. <laughs> uh, Perry, I did want to ask you this, though, because, look, it, I get it, but did you feel, whatever, Wonder Woman was just such this moment of, like, female empowerment and all that stuff, you know, you know, little, like, you know, it was part of that whole, like, when Captain Marvel came out, you know, little girls and, like, flight suits, you know, and there was so much of that in the first Wonder Woman. I mean, folks got upset about them doing uh, all female Wonder Woman screenings and all that, but it just felt like this huge moment for women to say rah, rah, rah. And when you make the premise about the girl needing her boyfriend, I think it just keeps going back to this idea of like, they need a man to be complete. And that probably ended up being, I think kind of the premise of what was the Achilles heel of this movie when we sort of switch over and talk into the industry truck. So I'm just wondering if you felt the feminism rah rah in this one, Perry. I, I definitely didn't. And I won't fully blame it on the story because I'll never forget when that first movie came out and there was screenings loaded with women in the theater. And then on top of that, just seeing people out and about with kids dressed up as Wonder Woman, we, didn't, we just didn't get that this time. So I didn't get that feeling as far as it bleeding off the screen like it did before, because that definitely affected my viewing on, you know, a second and a third viewing of 2017's Wonder Woman. I didn't get that added bonus here. But this kind of brings me back to the stone thing, because the stone gives you... I guess the positive effect of encouraging suspension of disbelief to a point, because we're working with this magical object that's determining the, the path the story takes, but also the stone itself and its ability is what's muddling so many of the character journeys, if you know what I mean. This idea of trying to understand something like Diana needing Steve in her life and wanting him so bad that she's willing to give up the things that, you know, makes her her, but then at the same time, trying to understand that Diana isn't fully Diana because the stone is taking that thing from her, so her processing that isn't the same had the stone not been taking anything from her to begin with, if you know what I mean. It that's, just, a very, it, that's a very fair point you bring up, Perry, because, yeah, the, the stone is, is muddling this, and so we walk into the theater expecting just this is going to be Wonder Woman, she's going to be great and she's gonna be heroic, and it's gonna be Superman the whole time, and it wasn't partially because of a big device in the movie, and I wanna be clear about something. When I say I wanted this to feel more like a celebration, I don't need, this is not a Captain Marvel needs to smile more thing. This is something where the movie itself, I don't care if Diane is not happy or if she's focused and, and doesn't crack a smile every time she foils a bad guy. My problem is that the, the entire movie just feels too heavy and like we can't enjoy any of these character journeys even though we are pretty sure we know where we're going and on top of that I even if there was happiness to be had on screen I couldn't feel any of it because I'm so busy trying to piece together who in their right mind would want to date a random guy that now has a different soul in the body. It reminded me of the scene in Ghost, which was done very well. The go with with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore and Whoopi Goldberg. There's one tiny scene in Ghost where 
we have almost successfully proven to Demi Moore's character that Patrick Swayze is still around in Seoul, even though he was murdered, and he's trying to help Demi with this problem she's having with Tony Goldwyn's character. So to do that, the psychic medium, Whoopi Goldberg, actually dances with Demi Moore. But the way that it's framed is it's Patrick Swayze dancing, and she feels the magic, she feels the love, and it's a beautiful moment. You leave the theater like, oh, she was actually just dancing with Whoopi Goldberg in that apartment. We all know that, right? Fine. It, it was a beautiful moment. The beauty of the moment outweighed the science of it, so to speak. That never happened in this movie. There was no beautiful moment that could possibly outweigh the fact that we're basically pet cemeterying Chris Pine back into this movie. For what reason? I don't know. I, I, I don't know why. He, he, he blew up in fantastic, you know, uh, a way at the end of the first movie. And so now I just want to move on. <laughs> When you look at that first trailer, you literally thought you were going to Wonder Woman, a, you know, a catas like a, a cornucopia of color and life. And then you get there and it is basically like a death march or a zombie march, depending on who you ask. And I think the scene that really sort of like summed it up for me was the scene where the two of them are in bed and like discussing like what happened. And like Steve is like, well, it was dark for a while. And then I woke up here and I'm just like, can we like take a minute to discuss the fact that he just basically just, you know, ya ya yada the afterlife? Like what? <laughs> like, like really that's what happened. And, and and again, they had to because they want to get into the happy moments like, oh, they're in bed and they're loving each other. And look, I'm not going to put too fine a point on it, but Diana's first, I'm assuming, sexual experience was with Steve Trevor in 1940. Based on the way that they're sort of perceiving Diana to be, she's never had a sexual experience since this new person. And... There is going to be, there's no way that those experiences were the same. And I'm just saying, did anyone contemplate the fact of like, what if new dude was better? Mm. What if his equipment was better? Oh. I'm not, the technique would be the same because it's Steve. And I'm sure the wish thing made the body somewhat similar, but you know. I will never be able to unhear that. <laughs> It's a, it, I'm just it's, saying, what if random dude who Diana actually ends up meeting at the end, she's like, hey, I wouldn't mind unwrapping that present again. What's your name? I'm just saying. I'm just. I mean, it is a little surprising that they didn't think that element of the movie through more thoroughly because I am a very big fan of bringing Steve Trevor back as far as how it furthers Diana's journey. She very clearly needed to have that experience with him so that she could put their relationship behind her and move on with her life. There's literally no point in doing the body swap thing. There's no point in it whatsoever. He very easily could have just materialized anywhere in Diana's vicinity and still had that same charming moment of look at things in the 80s. We could still have a, you know, a clothing montage. You just, you didn't need that part at all. Wait a minute. They said it was it was it was suspending disbelief too much to assume that they were able to bring Steve's bodies back. But the fact that they could bring him back, yeah, we can make that leap. But that, you know, bringing him back exactly is too far of a leap. So let's go get a replacement. I, I feel like everybody's wish got botched somehow in in, in the movie. I, I think that the stone does giveth and taketh away. 
pretty fairly, but everybody else in this movie is just asking for such this extraneous wish of like uniting peoples and kingdoms and like the, the Middle East coming together and saving the world. And then Diana's like, I just want this dude back. And the, the stone is like, all right, if that's really what you want. And then the stone finds a guy. See, but if the stone really give it and take it away, Jacqueline, I'm going to go the opposite of your theory. I think the stone would be like, all right, you want Steve Trevor? Let's see how bad you want him. And she puts him inside a guy who maybe doesn't have the, um, the same way, assets that either way like there's going like we already know there's a difference because like at the end of the movie we see the other steve and i, I i'm guessing they're about the same height the same build but there's some very clear distinctions between the way that they look and again if you're gonna make any subtle differences between them there might be other differences he just makes he's gonna smell different like it's just I don't know when you when you talk about love and being actually in love with somebody it is all of who they are it is not just this idea of who they are dogs know if she had a dog if she had molly the wonder dog (laughs) molly would have gone up to that new steve trevor been like who's this stiff i i I have no idea who this guy is that could have been really funny have a dog test it yeah, to have to have a dog in that kind of scenario you. because I, you know, it's magic, and I think the movie sells well enough that as soon as it clicks that it's Steve to Diana, like nothing else about the original guy exists. He is her Steve Trevor. So I bought that. But if you had a dog in that apartment that somehow could sniff out what was really going on, it would have been. It even would have been nice to have that touch of humor because the body swap scenario comes with so much humor, and now we have this this really dark uh, tinge of awkwardness and, I mean, I guess, frankly, darkness to it that's that's weird. Okay, it's really well, weird. W- Wonder Woman 3 has already been greenlit. Patty Jenkins is coming back. I just want to let everybody know Molly the Wonder Dog is available. You're going to have to up the craft services budget because Molly is not a cheap eater. But that also gets us into our next segment here on the show, which is where we're going to talk about some of the behind-the-scenes of the making of this movie and watching the film, it did feel like there were some things that were shoehorned in. And I know Patty Jenkins has been on the record on social media saying that this was not a situation where the studio forced her to make this movie. She got to make the movie she wanted. I'm I'm sorry. I, I don't trust any filmmaker in the same way. I don't trust any NFL coach on Wednesday where they say, oh, this player is starting. This player is questionable. I, I'll believe it when I see it on the field on Sunday. With this movie, I feel like if she got to make the movie she wanted, that would be like me, who hates seafood, saying, okay, well, Jacqueline and Perry and Lucy wanted to go to McCormick and Schmick's. And I didn't want to go to that restaurant because it's a seafood restaurant, but I can get a steak there. And so I got to order the meal I wanted to. However, I was not at the restaurant that I would have preferred. This restaurant in Wonder Woman 1984 shoves the 80s in there. It, it demands that Chris Pine return. And I don't feel like that was necessarily the call of the director. That's me as a fan of the first movie watching this film. I also look at all of the parts of the movie that felt the most loved. Look, uh, sometimes the I is, the beginning, yeah, the mascara, yeah, the beginning. So sometimes when I watch independent films, um, I, I remember watching a film a few years ago. I won't name the director, but there was a scene in the movie that was this cool scene. It was like a great transition between a character's 
um, triumphant moment into a moment of tragedy. So they take like this person, you know, in a moment of like love and ecstasy, like be like, oh, I love you. into crying as that person is literally dragging them across the floor by their hair. And the, and the transfer is so great. The camera work is amazing. That director has had that camera shot in his head for years and it's beautiful, but it was so foreign to the rest of the movie. I was like, he should have killed that darling. This situation, Warner Brothers had their darlings. They needed Chris Pine back. Um, because one of the reasons why Wonder Woman, the first one worked is because you had Chris Pine, Captain Kirk, Gal Gadot, who wasn't really known at the time. Gal Gadot may be Wonder Woman, but Gal Gadot has not been proven to open a movie yet outside of having her and somebody else in a big movie. You know what I'm saying? Like Wonder Woman opened the movie and made Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot by herself has not opened a movie like that. Does that make sense? Chris Pine has as Captain Kirk and as other characters that he's done. So bringing him back, that helps get the insurance, that helps get the budget up. They gave Kat, uh, Patty Jenkins $200 million. And I've worked in this industry long enough that although she may come out now or the press may come out now and say that Patty Jenkins got to make the movie that she wanted, I call BS because nobody just gives somebody $200 million and said, go make a movie. Perry, did you feel the same sense of this feels like too many ingredients and maybe too many sh grocery shoppers to help Patty cook this meal? Hey, you know, I I'm always hesitant to say whether or not that was the case because it's, you know, I'm reading all these quotes, I'm following all the news as it's happening. It's a whole bunch of he said, she said from my point of view because I'm not in those you know, closed door meetings. I don't know what really happened, but I do have a general sense of how the studio system works. And when you're spending that kind of money on one movie, it's never, like almost never, purely the director's vision. They have an entire franchise to support and that's a significant amount of money. And I know, I know a lot of times, and I'm always rooting for this, for the director to see their vision through to the end. But sometimes that is why you have producers and other creatives in in the vicinity is so in case a director's like i really like this idea but maybe that idea is not working another person with a creative brain is able to step in and say you know maybe we could refine it this way to make it even better so i, I think, think that's that a great point there's a collaboration happening here no doubt right and, and it's just the collaboration itself seems to be the failure for me anyway, because I think that this movie is not a fresh film because I, it, we always tend to, as fans, paint the studio or producers even, sorry, Lucy, as Dr. Claw behind the scenes, making you do all these evil things that nobody's going to like. And, and, and that's not true. They're trying to make their bottom line. They're trying to make a movie that does very well with critics and with fans and makes a lot of money. The director's trying to make their vision come to life. And there's been multiple examples of studio meddling that actually helps make a movie better. I mean, hell, when you hamstring directors, sometimes it ends up... Steven Spielberg... It, he couldn't show the shark as much as he wanted to in Jaws. Guess what? It's a great movie. George Lucas, handcuffed for Star Wars. Guess what? It's a great movie. So there's so many times when either a lack of budget or a lack of having to work around things or a studio's notes have helped a picture. But I just feel like in this case, it is glaringly obvious that we could have had a much better... Se I know this is not supposed to be painted as a sequel. It's not supposed to be Wonder Woman 2. I feel like Wonder Woman 2 could have been a better movie than this. Yeah. It had the ingredients and I I I love Patty Jenkins. I went back recently and watched watched Monster. I was uh 
do thinking about something with Charlize Theron. And I just still don't think she got to make the movie that she wanted to make. And I will just say, I just, I just want to go back to whatever it was, 2014 or 13, when she walked away from Thor 2. And I just wonder where we would be uh, if not that. And didn't she just, is it, who just got tapped for another Star Wars? Is She's it, doing a Star Wars movie. Yeah, that's She's Star doing, Wars, I, so it's her. I, I think it's called Rogue Squadron, which yeah. they had such a cool promo vid of her talking about her, yeah. her dad, who was a fighter pilot. And, yeah. and and I felt like I was watching like somebody talk about making Top Gun now three. And I was like, I am you put Top Gun in Star Wars? And I think that she is the right person. Th- this movie that I just watched, I didn't like it. Doesn't mean that I don't think Patty Jenkins can make a slam dunk, knockdown, drag out, slobber knocker, awesome of a fighter pilot movie in outer space in my favorite galaxy, Star Wars. But getting back to the studio notes thing, there are some directors that could use it. And I hate to say it, Zack Snyder, sometimes studio does need to rein him in. But now he's got this HBO Max thing that's dropping later this year, which is Justice League, which also has Wonder Woman in it. And so where I was... Kind of, and I think a lot of other fans were looking at Wonder Woman 1984 for a cool standalone movie, but also maybe to answer some questions as to what the hell are we doing with the DCEU. Now that all falls squarely on the shoulders of Zack Snyder's Justice League, and I don't know that Zack cares about it either. I think he just wants to make a great, hey, look at what could have happened. Here's four hours of it, and then we move on with these individual storylines. I don't know that this is going to be a cohesive unit going forward. I I don't think that there's anything about Wonder Woman 84 that makes me view what Zack Snyder could be doing over there in a different light, whether it's for better or worse. Everything about the DC film franchise at this point feels so separate to me, and that's why I'm really liking it. Whether or not, you know, it's like Aquaman isn't my favorite. I adore Birds of Prey, but I still appreciate both movies because I think those are two great examples of taking big swings within a long-running franchise, and these franchises are not going to last unless you do things like that. So the connectivity here, I don't think anything has changed, and I think it was done with great purpose that Wonder Woman 1984 was its own standalone story, its own standalone story from the DC film franchise, and also to an extent from the very first Wonder Woman movie. Uh, I'm going to give Mark a Van Halen reference, and it'll probably be the only one in the history of the world that I will ever do that is accurate. But the DCEU since Justice League feels like that moment at the MTV Movie Awards when they brought uh, Dave back. And it was like this great moment. You've got Billy Corgan saying, we need, San- we need them to come back. They're presenting an award to Beck. This is 1996, a- after Sammy Hagar has left the band, yep. 10 years after David Lee Roth had left the band, and yep. then it was David Lee Roth reuniting with the three other original members of Van Halen at the MTV Movie Awards. And it's like, oh, are we getting a new album? Are album? we getting a new tour? We're so excited Everybody to was see excited. the Van Halen. And by the time they get to the after show the band is broken up dave's gonna do his solo album which is like the solo batman wonder woman's gonna be over here and that's like the rest of van halen when they go get gary sinise who cares but like this is like a family gary where they're Sharon. just jerry Sharon, <laughs> Sarah sinise 
You know what? I was good enough to know the fucking name of the band. Sorry. I was good enough to know the name of the band. And I got the analogy halfway there. As someone who barely knows anything, I get credit. But yeah, it's not Gary Sinise. I went back to my movie brain. Gary Sharon, there's a diaspora of the DCEU and they just need to acknowledge that. This is a family where they're all just waiting for the parents to die. Like they they don't they don't like each other. There's nothing going on with any of these stories that make any sense. They're part of a family and they're just kind of like, y'all do you, we gonna do us. You know, like there may be a big reunion again at some point, but in my personal opinion, I think they're all just gonna live each other's lives and and keep up with each other on Instagram. I have and, a and, prediction. And, huh. I think it's ch- I think it's changing. I think it's yeah. changing, but I think the future of the DC film franchise is that they're going to give us the best of both worlds. I think they're going to continue to, you know, take swings along the line of it it's going to happen along the lines of Joker with, you know, the Robert Pattinson Batman movie, but you already see things coming together with a movie like Birds of Prey and The Suicide Squad with Shazam and Black Adam and you know, I know it's not the greatest thing when you're such a big fan of a property to see things not pan out the way you want, but if the first few DCEU movies inform the collaboration going forward for the better, then fine by me. I don't necessarily need them to team up like the Avengers. I think all these standalone movies have been great, but it, when you see a standalone movie that disappoints you, it, your, your natural inclination is to say, okay, well, what's next for this character that I loved and now was in a movie that I didn't like? Because the, the route that you take is either they team up with a bunch of other heroes and they and, and they reunite then we love everybody again or it just tends to peter out as the history of superhero movies have taught us is that Christopher Reeve is Superman to bring that movie back Superman 1 great Superman 2 maybe even better Superman 3 I love Richard Pryor Ugh. Superman 4 the quest for peace that was just kind of saying to the world okay uh, we're done with this run with Christopher Reeve as Superman so let me ask you all this Wonder Woman 3 what does it need to do to sort of bring back the fact that Gal Gadot is our Wonder Woman and we want her for nine more movies and we want to continue to celebrate that? Or would Wonder Woman 3, ideally for y'all, just be closing out this trilogy on a high note and then we say, thank you, good night? I'm not willing to say that just yet. If I, if I had one wish for the next Wonder go. Woman movie, I would want it to do similar things but with a more refined story. And if that means paring things down, that's the way you go about it because they they had everything there. And kind of talking about what you guys were discussing earlier as far as too many cooks in the kitchen, it's like, I, I, I don't know, I'm not an artist, but have you ever made like a big painting and you're so focused on like one little spot of it and then when you pull back, you realize all those little spots that you don't love don't come together in a cohesive, (laughs) beautiful image. I mean, that's what filmmaking is in general. And I think that's even more true when you're talking about a gigantic, big budget movie with so many hands in it and so many storylines and characters to deal with and also so many technical elements too. So I would love for them to go back to the 2017 movie and look at how streamlined that story is, but how much they were able to say with it. You don't need to add all these stars if you just focus on, I'm not even necessarily saying one clear storyline for Diana, you can add more to it, but you need to have a more refined script than what Wonder Woman 1984 is. I have a pitch for Wonder Woman 3, and it's not really a pitch, it's just more of a thematic idea. 
I would like to see them skyfall Diana because one of the things that I found to be particularly powerful is removing Diana's powers is just an interesting thing for that character when you have somebody that is so powerful. And the cool thing when Skyfall happened with James Bond is seeing James Bond not be able to be James Bond for a little bit. And I think, don't go any further than 1980. Maybe show that something happened between 1940 and 1980 where Diana had a moment where her trying to be her made her lose her powers, had a conscience of faith, and then had to come back. Get Diana to be a little, get her a little bit, little dirty. Get her a little bit to question her own, you know, sort of Pollyannish look at the world and have her then find it again. That to me is a more interesting place to put the character who always looks on the bright side of everything. Really give her something to build herself back from. And that would be a fitting way to end the character because I do personally feel I'm like, after this, y'all need it. That's one of my favorite scenes in all of Superman lore is when Clark Kent, Superman, yeah. loses his Superman powers. And you it, like, like you see him in a bar and he's getting picked on. It's like, dude, turn into Superman. He's like, I can't turn into Superman. It's like, oh my God, no. It's just like, it's yeah. so many emotions. In that one yeah. scene, just didn't feel the Wonder Woman magic in Wonder Woman 1984 like I did in the first one. So now we're going to start closing down the show. But before we do, I want to remind y'all, I'm going to have a dynamite Wonder Woman 1984 trivia question in just a little bit. And I know that gets Perry's competitive sensibilities, the winner of Upset of the Year in the movie Trivia Schmodown this past season. Um, But Perry, before we get into all of that good stuff, simply put, it was great seeing you. It was great hearing you again. I miss you. And I would love to know if you have any sort of Streaming, movie, TV recommendation for all the kids out there who are listening to us right now. This is a dangerous question to ask me right now because I could go on and on. I'm going to give you two TV titles right now. So for anybody out there who saw commercials for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist and they thought, what a silly, ridiculous, I don't want to watch people singing and dancing for an NBC comedy. No, no, no. Think again. The advertisements for that show didn't get into even a fraction of the amount of heart and emotion that that series has, and it's got a fantastic ensemble. Cannot recommend it enough, and I know you're going to like this one, Mark. The other one is Cobra Kai. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I didn't think I could be more obsessed with that show than I already was after seasons one and two, but somehow they've sent me yet again, they've already done this twice, they send me back to the 1984 Karate Kid, have me watch that movie in a new light, and on top of that, they're also doing it with Karate Kid Part 2 in this new season, and maybe also a little bit Karate Kid Part 3. So... Go watch Cobra Kai. You have my warning, though. You're going to watch one episode and just blow through the whole thing. Perry, where can we find all of the stuff that you're working on? Uh, I know that if you want to follow Perry on social media, some of the best takes on on movies and she does such a fantastic job with her reports with with her interviews some of the biggest names in the industry which she's quickly becoming as well um you can follow her on on social media at p nemeroff and what's uh, you still have the witching hour going right yeah the witching hour is going a lot of work on collider but i feel like my baby has become collider ladies night i can't even put into 
words the joy I get out of talking to someone about a craft that they're super passionate about and getting a clear understanding of like the seeds that it all grew from and then seeing them use those early experiences in their work now, that show, I just can't get enough of it. And our latest episode is with Elizabeth Olsen of all people. I can't believe I'm even saying these things out loud. I feel so lucky to get to do that show and I adore it. And we adored having you on today. You can follow my esteemed co-host, I'm really her co-host, Jacqueline Coley at that Jacqueline. And Jacqueline, we do, I'm, I'm at Mark Ellis Live. Jacqueline, we love when fans communicate with us. We love them getting in touch with the show so we can make our own program better and deliver you the movie conversations that you really want to hear. How do they get in touch with us? But I mean, really, they love producer Lucy, apparently. She's the star of the show to all of our fans. Yes, you will be talking to Lucy when you send these missives, but they do wow. eventually get to us. And then sometimes Mark and I will get to read them on air. Hey, you know, we might even have a mailbag episode. Stay tuned. But if you want to let us know how we're doing, go ahead and email us at rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. We are here for you. Again, a final reminder, we are on tons of podcast platforms wherever you guys are listening to us. If you have the ability, like, subscribe, tell your friends. We have some really great guests coming up. And uh, hey, Mark, we have a new mention, I think, for folks that are listening to us outside of, you know, North America, the United States, right? Wonder Woman 1984, probably still playing in theaters in some parts of maybe the country. And, and I know a lot of our international listeners probably got the chance to see this in a theater when it was first released. And so I'm very curious if y'all want to hit us up via email. RT is wrong. What was the theater experience like? D did it enhance your viewing pleasure of the movie? I, I think I'm smart enough to disseminate whether a good movie is on my TV or whether a bad movie is in a theater, but I would love to hear y'all's firsthand experiences watching Wonder Woman 1984 in a theater. And I did say I had a fun trivia question for everybody at home, as well as my two counterparts here on the show. Perry, Jack, Lucy, you can play along as well. The, the, the running time of Wonder Woman 1984 is 151 minutes, making it the second longest running time of any film in the DCEU. What is number one? Clocking in at just a minute more at 152 minute runtime. This it's is just the DCEU. It's got to be a yeah. Zack Snyder movie. I'm going to say Batman v Superman. All right, Perry, your guess? Just so I have a different option here. I'll just throw out Aquaman because I believe that was fairly long too. And Lucy? Justice League. Justice League. Da -da -da. Okay, well, this is not Zack Snyder's Justice League because that has not been released yet as of this recording. So the answer and the winner is Jacqueline Coley, B versus S, Batman v Superman, 152 long, long long minutes but a lot of good stuff in there too and we covered that in a recent episode of rotten tomatoes is wrong with special guest mike kalinowski um just for funsies perry aquaman is 143 minutes so you were in the right ballpark i knew i you knew were, that was that was on the long side as well i was almost were, uh, gonna take my answer back and say man of steel though but i don't remember the runtime on that at all <laughs> it just felt long well Hey, this podcast, lest it feel too long, we're going to close up shop here. Jacqueline, what do we got cooking next week on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong? Yo, anybody that was at Comic-Con, you know, lat, not last year because we didn't have one, but the year before, back when we could be around people, there was a great moment when Mahersha Ali put a cap upon his head because he said that he was going to do a new blade. But 
before we get to see two-time Oscar winner and literally one of the sexiest mans on this planet Earth, Mahershala Ali, Playblade, we're going to revisit the first man who did it and one of the very first early modern-day superhero movies. That's right, Wesley Snipes' Blade, the techno, blood-soaked, Stephen Dorff, bizarre of a movie that I love so much. I will try to keep my white man can't jump references to a minimum, but no promises because I do love me some Wesley Snipes, a.k.a. Willie Mays Hayes in Major League. That's going to do it for the show here today for our esteemed engineer, Christian Rubalcaba, Lucy Bruckner, the producer to the stars who all of our emailers adore, my co-host Jacqueline Coley, and our very special guest, Perry Nemiroff, hailing from Iowa Nebular, home of Jurassic Park. Thanks for joining us, one and all. To each and every one of our listeners, we appreciate you. Even if we disagree, that's why it's fun to have these kind of movie conversations. So like, review, rate, all that good stuff wherever you enjoy your podcast. And until next week, where we will be talking about Blade, I'm Mark Ellis saying so long. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.